Those are good questions to keep in mind for all of us. So today is Pentecost Sunday. We're in Acts chapter 2. We'll also a little bit later be uh, looking at a few verses from Ephesians. So in Acts chapter 2 is the account, Luke's account, of what happened on that initial Pentecost Sunday. Uh, Pentecost is a harvest festival. It's called First Fruits. It's also called Feast of Weeks. It's about seven weeks after um, Easter, the resurrection. And after being up in the upper room there for 10 days, men and women, 120 people up there, all waiting and praying, And it speaks about God's faithfulness, but it also speaks about their obedience. When God speaks to us and gives us a word, and when we act in obedience on that word, great things happen. God's speaking to us, God initiating that, God working within us. So in obedience to Him, they were all together. And you've got these... uh, audio-visuals, if you want to look at it that way. And the Holy Spirit comes, and Jesus had his consistent teaching about the Holy Spirit, was that the Holy Spirit was to come to enable us to be his witnesses. Not just to be able to give a witness, but to be a witness. And ministry and witness is why the Holy Spirit has come. He's fulfilling the promise that God made to Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. God was talking to Abraham and he was uh, speaking again about obedience. And because Abraham acted and believed and trusted God, God said, through you, all peoples on earth will be blessed. It's for everybody. All peoples on the earth will be blessed. So in Acts 2... There in the upper room, the Holy Spirit comes in great power. Um, Visually and audibly, there was a sound of a great wind blowing. And it would be like we were in this room, air conditioner is off, so you can't hear the uh, air coming off or anything. And the whole room sounds like a hurricane inside. Just a powerful, powerful um, wind blowing through. At the same time, there was... uh, looked like tongues of fire on top of each person. And so they became the light of the world. It was a visual way of saying, Christ in you. Holy Spirit's power forming the life of Christ in you, and you become the light of the world. It was more than just symbolism, though, because what they did was they left that room And here's the thing, everything about when God speaks to us and works in our heart, it's for the purpose of bringing glory and honor to Him. We're not to camp out and stay there. The disciples wanted to do that on Mount of Transfiguration, you remember. 
tremendous power, uh, a tremendous revelation, the glory of God present, shining through people, and they're seeing and they're understanding, and God is working in them, and they wanted to stay. This is great. We want to build a tabernacle and one for you and Moses and Elijah, and we'll just stay here. And the Lord said, it's, no, we have to go down the hill. There's a demon-possessed boy at the bottom. There's people who are, who are hurting, people who are needing, people who haven't learned yet. And so you're given these things as a trust, and God expects us to take what he's shown us and be the light of the world. And so he sent them out immediately. And because Pentecost was um, an annual harvest festival, it was a time of great joy. It was the beginning of the barley harvest, one of the first crops that they harvested uh, in their year in Israel. And they offered up the first fruits. And here the apostles and the 120 that are in that upper room become the first fruits that God is going to offer as a sacrifice. Uh, glory and praise to God. It's a, a harvest time. It's a feast of ingathering a time of great joy and celebration for the fruitfulness, the productivity of the land. Gratitude and praise to God. Offer him, him back the first and the best of what we have. And so people from, it was one of the required feasts for um, any Jewish man who could, who could make it. So people from all over the Roman Empire and beyond were there. And most of these were, as Luke tells us, were God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Now they hear the sound and they hear all this crowd comes because the disciples, when they go forth, they go forth speaking. And it's, it's not them, it's the Holy Spirit working in and through them, expressing himself through them. They're out, they're saying, they're talking in languages they did not know. Now these are just ordinary people from Galilee, hardworking, blue-collar people is what we would call them. Some of them had been businessmen. But they were ordinary folks, um, uneducated by the standard of the day, were not well-traveled or anything like that, border towns. And they were up there, and God's Spirit came upon them, and they began to proclaim in languages they themselves did not know. They began to proclaim the glorious and great deeds of God. So what were they talking about? This was an amazing thing. Uh, it's a complete reversal of the Tower of Babel. At the Tower of Babel, everybody had one language. Everybody understood everybody. But then, because of their rebellion as an act of judgment, God confused their languages. So they were speaking in the language that they, are, that they used every day, and nobody understood them. My dad had a stroke. And it affected his speech, and he, he would try to communicate with us, and he was saying words that he understood, but it would just come out babble. And he tried to write, and it, you know, he, he, he knew what he was wanting to write, but it just came out scribbled, and he would shake his head. It was so frustrating for him, because he was trying to communicate. He knew what he wanted to say, and he was saying it right in his mind, but it wasn't coming out right. That's what happened at the Tower of Babel. Well, God, what God was doing was because of the pouring out of His Spirit upon all flesh now. This was a message for everybody. 
And these people were speaking, these 120 were speaking words that they didn't understand, but for each individual from whatever country they were in, it was clear as crystal. They got the message that God was saying. This is a message for you. They were speaking in their native language. Um, and you best communicate in, in your mother tongue. You may know many languages, but you're most comfortable and it's most meaningful in your own mother tongue. And that's the language that God speaks. God speaks your language. He speaks my language. Words that we can understand in a way that we can understand them. And they were proclaiming the great deeds of God. The wonders in our own language. And it's an amazing thing when you talk to somebody in their own language. Um, we've done this many times in rural Africa. We learn, I'm not good at languages, but I learn a few words, greetings, and how to ask for certain things, um, how to ask about their family and things like that. So we walk in this little spaza. It's a little, little bitty store. It's got three or four things on the shelf, and that's it. But that's the community store. Walked in to, to get something for our camp that we were on, um, and greeted them in their own language. And these other people in there from the village, you know, and they, their lies, eyes light up. For, for one thing, it's weird having a white guy in their, in their village. That's a shock. But then he speaks their language, even if it's just a few words. And they were, they're just amazed, and they were talking to themselves, and they were saying, who would have ever thought a white man in our village speaks our language? Because the demand was they all had to learn English. Uh, or Afrikaans, by law. And they said, we never thought we'd live to see the day that that would take place in our village. And God was speaking now to each one of these individuals. And notice what he's doing. He's breaking down barriers. Because one of the things that happened at the Tower of Babel was when you can't communicate with someone else, there are walls, there are barriers. There's no effective communication and there's no way you can, you can understand. It's like our, our little children when they're first learning to communicate. It's sounds and babbles and things. And um, then they get a little better at it. And they'll put together whole, whole paragraphs, whole books, whole chapters. And not a word that you or I can understand. They know exactly what they're saying. And um, so it's this communication that's going on. And so without the, without the proper understanding of the language... Everything comes pretty well to a, to a halt. It's very awkward to try to, to work uh, around that. So God is now breaking down the barriers between people. He's communicating to them in their own native language miracles, wonders of what God is doing. And he lists a whole bunch of them here. Um, and they're from all over the huge Roman Empire, including, he says in verse 11, both Jews and converts to Judaism. So these were Gentile peoples who had converted to Christianity, to, uh, to uh, Judaism, that were there. And it includes Cretans and Arabs. Each one hearing God speak in their own native tongue. And God is the God of unity. He's the God of oneness. And he's breaking down the walls. Now it says that um, they didn't know what to do with that. 
All these people, and there, were been, there would have been thousands of them there in Jerusalem. And they got this big commotion going on, and you're walking by in a foreign country, and somebody is speaking your language clearly and fluently, and they're telling words that minister to you. So these people stop, and they go here to go see what's going on. And so they all run over there, and it says, it uses words like they were bewildered. And it says they were amazed and perplexed, and they're asking each other, what does this mean? And so it's the kind of thing, uh, when it says that they were perplexed, it means that they were at a loss in one's own mind about something. They didn't know what to make of this. Um, you know, they're hearing it, and, they're, and it's like, what's this all about? But they're asking each other the right question. What does this mean? What, who are these people? Why are they sell, saying these things? And how did they get this learning? These people are all Galileans. Where did they get this knowledge from? And so there's this confusion, but they're asking the right question. What does this mean? Now, it's one thing. We don't interpret the Word of God correctly if we only have facts, just facts. We need to know what it means. How does it apply? And they're asking the right question. They're hearing the words. They're hearing the testimony. And so they're saying it means that they're open to hearing a message. What does this mean? There is an openness there created by God to receive the message that they're about to hear. And so Peter begins to address this question. He's answering the question. And it's just like anything else. When something unusual happens, you've got people that are genuinely interested and concerned, people who really want to know, and then you have the scoffers, the mockers. There's always a group, aren't they? Always these guys coming in trying to find something to make fun of, trying to belittle something that's being done because they don't understand, but the difference is they don't care. That's the difference. And there's not an openness there. But most of the people were open. So Peter stands up and he addressed them, and he says, let me explain to you, listen carefully to what I say. And he starts meeting them where they are. These are Jews. And so he begins with the Old Testament prophets, the prophet Joel. And it's a tremendous sermon. It's based on Joel chapter 2. And he says God, basically, is tearing down every wall, every barrier that keeps people from one another, keeps them from the unity of the presence of the Lord. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Notice he didn't say Jews. He said all people. And the promise to Abraham wasn't just to Abraham's descendants. It's through them the blessings are going to come on all peoples everywhere. I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. On my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. So these are issues that we're familiar with these days, isn't it? God says, I'm going to pour out my spirit upon all flesh, men and women. He's dealing with the gender issues today. He says, old and young. He's dealing with the generational issues that separate people today. 
Later on, he's going to talk about the difference between the rich and the poor. And then he's going to talk about the difference between Jews and Gentiles. He's tearing down the walls. So I have a question for us today as well. What is it that, what walls have we built around ourselves that divide us, separate us from one another? That hold people off, that allows us to be so self-centered that we don't care about what, what happens with other people. I want my way. I want to be right. I want you to acknowledge that I'm right. And I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it. Uh, so if you're going to help me, I'll receive that gladly. If you're going to oppose me, get out of the way. <laughs> and that's the way we live. So what kind of walls do we build? Um, well, that person's old, or that person's too young, or she's just a woman, you know, that kind of deal. Uh, what kind of walls are we building? Well, that person, he's from the Middle East. Uh, they they got to be some terrorist or something, right? Well, that, they're not from our church. Uh, they must be wrong. What kind of walls are we building? And the Lord, through his Spirit, is saying, I've come to abolish all of those because we are all... God's children, created in his image. And Christ died for all. And so the message is for us all. And so what he's saying here, God is doing a new thing. He's poured out his spirit upon all flesh and he is abolishing the sin that separates us because the prejudices and the fears, just another word for sin. So Peter is saying what Joel prophesied all those hundreds of years before, God is fulfilling now. That's what you're saying. That's what you're hearing. That's what this is all about. And the bottom line is in verse 21. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the text that he gave. Then comes the sermon. So far all he's done is give us the text. The sermon comes, and he begins to proclaim Jesus because that's what the Holy Spirit does, isn't it? The Holy Spirit always witnesses to Christ, always. Jesus said he's going to be another comforter, a counselor, one, a helper who comes alongside of you, and he's going to take from what is, belongs to Christ, and he's going to give it to us. He's going to take the teachings of Christ and bring it to our memory and make the application. And so that's what's going on here. He preached Jesus, crucified, risen, ascended to the right hand of God, and the giver along with God the Father of the Holy Spirit. That's his sermon. So he says God raised Jesus from the dead because it's impossible for death to keep its hold on him. So normally... The way things normally work in our lives, in our lifetimes, is that life is consumed by death eventually. But with Jesus, that process was stopped and reversed. The spirit of life in Christ, because it was sinless, because the power of, of death is sin. And because there was no sin, it had no power over him. And so he got up and rose again. 
And he offers us that kind of life. So that's what he's doing. That's the application that he's making. When he gets to the end of the sermon, he's talking about David. And he's saying, David was a prophet. He was a king. But he also functioned as a prophet. In verse 31, seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, the ones that they just crucified. And we are all witnesses of the fact. And that's the Holy Spirit's task, to witness. And he does that in us. So you remember uh, in the book of Judges, chapter 6, verse 34, it talks about the Holy Spirit coming upon Gideon. Literally, in Hebrew it says literally, the Spirit clothed himself with Gideon. This is an incarnation. The Holy Spirit taking on flesh and blood through Gideon. Now he worked through Gideon's life, his personality, his circumstances, but it was the Holy Spirit who was empowering him, enabling him, equipping him to do what God had called him to do. That's what's taking place here on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit coming in, empowering, enabling, equipping um, they become an incarnation in the flesh of the Holy Spirit's activity and ministry to the people that are sitting around them. And that's what's going on. Peter says, verse 33, Exalted to the right hand of God, He, that's Jesus, has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. This is the answer to the question they were asking. What does this mean? saying God's fulfilling His promises. And He's doing it today through us, here, now, contemporary type stuff. So the Holy Spirit comes to enable them to be witnesses. He is the Spirit of truth. And what He's doing, even now while Peter is speaking, is the Holy Spirit is wielding the sword of the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, talking about the armor of God. And it talks about the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now that's what the Holy Spirit's doing this day. He's taking the sword of the Spirit and He's wielding it, applying it, making the application of these people. And what's the response? When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. The Holy Spirit making that application of the Word of God and it's piercing their heart, bringing conviction, and they're saying, oh no, men and brother, what shall we do? So they're asking good questions here. What does it mean? What do we do? Because they're acknowledging the truth of what he just said. This thing wasn't done in a corner. It was, only, it was less than two months that Jesus was crucified and risen. And a lot of these same people were there because that also, Passover, was a required feast. So many of these people knew the events that he was talking about. He's talking current events here for these people. And they were convicted by the Holy Spirit, which is one of his tasks, isn't it? To make the application of the Word of God. And it pierced their hearts. 
There was a genuine concern and a genuine repentance taking place there. There was a sorrow and there was a questioning, God, we've sinned so greatly, what, what, what do we do? So the Holy Spirit was sent to bear witness to the effectiveness of the death and resurrection and ascension of Christ. So Peter tells them what to do. This is very similar to what took place with John the Baptist. And he, his ministry, God working in and through him. People asking, what shall we do? Uh, what does it mean to repent? And he says, repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you, for your children, and for your children's children, and all who are far off. For all whom the Lord our God will call. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13, we'll back up here. We'll start with verse 11. Ephesians 2, 11. Now Paul was writing to a church, um, a strong church at Ephesus, uh, largely a Gentile church. And Paul says, Therefore remember that formerly... You who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope, without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. That's what Peter said on Pentecost Day. The promise is for you and your children, for all those who are far off. He's speaking about Gentiles. For all whom the Lord our God will call. And Paul makes the application in Ephesians. Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made the two, one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. And so God is working, and that's what he's doing on that day of Pentecost. He's dividing, he's taking away the dividing wall. There was a court of the Gentiles as you were approaching the temple, and the Gentiles were allowed to come in, those who were God-fearers, those who were seeking after God but didn't want to become Jews. And there were many, drawn by monotheism, uh, drawn by the high ethical content, good moral people, um, disillusioned with the, with the idolatry and the immorality of their society and culture, the bankruptcy of the wealth and the power around them, very much like today in our country. And they were sick of all that. And they had a genuine hunger for God. They didn't want to change who they were as far as nationality goes. But they were hungry for God. They could come to Jerusalem and they could come to the outer courts of the temple. But there was a wall and there were armed guards. So the court of the Gentiles. You can come this far and no farther. In Christ, that wall has been obliterated. You are all welcome in. Everybody is welcome in through repentance, 
receive forgiveness and cleansing, and you can enter into the Holy of Holies now. And that's what God wanted to help people try to understand that. So when Jesus was died, when he cried out, it's finished, in the temple, this thing was like 30 feet tall, the temple. It's a huge thing. And they had these massive curtains that um, overlapped, one this way and one this way. So if you wanted to get in there, the high priest, he'd come in this way and go around that way, like a little labyrinth, you know, to get in there. Because they, they didn't want anybody looking in there because this was only for those who were washed in the blood, coming before the Lord uh, to offer sacrifices for forgiveness and cleansing. When Jesus died and said, it's finished, that curtain ripped from top to bottom and was flung aside. And anybody could look in there and see. And, and Jesus was right. I am the way to the Father. And because of his shed blood, we can come through that path that he has made for us and enter into the presence of a holy God and not be killed in the process. So God is saying his purpose is to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, Jews. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. So we're no longer foreigners and aliens. Now we're fellow citizens. Now we're brothers and sisters in Christ. So why is there so much division in the church? Why do we get our feelings hurt? Why do we judge and condemn each other? Why do we do that? So the Holy Spirit on that first Pentecost makes the application, proclaimed the wonders of God's deeds. He spoke through Peter. The word of God pierced their hearts. And as Jonathan was reminding us, 3,000 new converts were added to the church that day. So the Holy Spirit is doing what he came to do. Being the witness, making the application, taking the word of God and making it alive through us. And that's his task, to form the life of Christ in us. And when the, Lord, the life of Christ is in us, it's a, a light that shines in the darkness. It shines in the darkness, Christ in us, through our relationships. So we want to look in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. That's hard. It's hard for us to be patient with each other, to bear with one another's shortcomings, not to excuse them, but to bear them understanding that we ourselves have shortcomings. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And this is important, what he's about to say. 
there is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. I think it's important for this um, community prayers on Tuesday because several churches are participating. It's good to remind ourselves and remind the community uh, these are our brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't have a fight with them. They are our brothers and sisters in Christ. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. It's a celebration of the things that we hold in common, not a parading of the things that divide us. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. So, what if Roman Catholic shows up? One Lord, one faith, one baptism. What about Orthodox? One Lord, one faith, one, one baptism. What Baptists? Anglicans or assembly, uh, Episcopals? Assembly of God? Uh, Church of Christ? Well, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Jesus died for that. So, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons, one God. In John 17, Jesus is talking about the unity that exists between him and his Father. And he prays that unity that Jesus enjoys with his Father to be ours with the Father as well. That's why he died. But he goes on and he says, Father, I pray that you would make them one as we, Father and Son, are one. On the day of Pentecost, 120 people, men and women, in the upper room, in one spirit, for one purpose, united by one calling. There were differences still. Very, very different people. Uh, not everybody was in complete agreement. They weren't robots, everybody doing the same thing from the same motive. It's a mixed bag just like we have today. But they were in one spirit, in obedience. What drew them together was their love for Christ and their obedience to Him. And those things overcame all the other petty differences that there were. Differences in personality, all that kind of stuff. Their love for God and Jesus Christ and their obedience to Him drew them together. And in that context, the Holy Spirit came. We need each other. We need to work together. We need to pray for one another. We need to help one another. Um, Christ comes for me as an individual. He comes for us collectively as, as a group, as a church. The body of Christ, very different appearances, very different functions and everything, but all part of the one self-same body and all extremely important. So that's what he was doing on the day of Pentecost. He was unleashing his Holy Spirit upon all flesh. What had been reserved for apostles and prophets and kings and priests now is available to us all 
and he gives us all those functions. Prophets, priests, kings, and queens. Um, and there's something for everybody. So the Holy Spirit comes, and when he comes, it's the birthday of the church. What do you do when you have a child who has a birthday? What do you do? You celebrate? What else do you do? You give gifts. And God is saying, I'm bringing to birth a new thing. The world had never seen anything like this before. Holy Spirit coming down. It was a great celebration. The context was celebration and joy and thanksgiving. And he's giving gifts. And he still gives gifts. Every one of us have received gifts from him. And so those gifts are for witness and service. So that's not a, you can't, oh, am I going to serve myself? Am I going to witness to myself? Well, no. You witness, you serve in the context of a group. That's the church, and that's the community in which we live. So because of Christ's presence, because the Holy Spirit empowers, enables, and equips, we become the light of the world, just like they did on Pentecost. So if you look closely, you might see a little flame. (laughs) It's the presence of the Holy Spirit sending forth his witness. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would bring glory to your name by cleansing us, by purging us, by forgiving our sins and bringing us together so that we can forgive one another. Empowering, enabling, equipping us to minister to each other and to the community around us, to be lights in the darkness, to be filled with your life that overcomes a world that's walking in death, to help them see the truth where the world is so deceived by the deceitfulness of sin and the appeals to the flesh. We pray, Lord, that you would work in and through us bodily, physically, ministering to the needs of those around us, proclaiming that Jesus Christ is Lord. We ask it in his name. Amen.